You know, if you have a study design, let's say, that is at one time point, and you just sort of asked people a bunch of things, you have what's called a problem of reverse causality, which means you don't really know whether it was the chicken or the egg first, and you really have no idea which one is causing which. And so you, you're limited in what you can say is the cause and the effect. In the more fancy or the more well-funded studies, for example, when you are able to follow people over time, that's one way you can start to say, okay, we know the chicken came before the egg, for example. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to understand how to navigate the healthcare system and how to take care of your health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston-Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Do you ever struggle with understanding the research process or how to make sense of the volume of information that comes our way on a daily basis? To be honest, I do too sometimes. So for today's episode, I reached out to the most jargon-free scientist I've ever met, who just happens to be one of my former professors, to discuss this issue with us and explain it to us in plain language. His name is Dr. Muhammad Ali, and he is a physician, scientist, father, and Rhodes Scholar with a diverse global background, both geographically and content-wise. Let's get to the episode. Welcome, Dr. Ali, to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you so much for coming. Could you please introduce yourself to everyone? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So my name is Muhammad Ali. I am a primary care physician and a professor of global health and epidemiology at Emory University. And I'm a vice chair for research also in, at Emory University. Could you explain to us a little bit about how the research process works? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a tough question to answer. But I think the, the simple way to think about research is that there are un, unanswered questions all around us in all aspects of our lives. And at least the type of research and work that I do, which is sort of medicine and public health, the types of questions generally are around what we should be doing to lengthen our lives and to improve the quality of our lives. And there are probably three big components to any research that happens in, in our field. And those three are, number one, you have to have a question. Number two, you have to have sort of a study design or an idea in mind of how you're going to respond to that question or how are you going to answer it. And then three, the third bucket really is scope. And that scope drives everything. So scope can be a, a budget scope. It could be, actually, usually it is a budget scope or, or a, a quality scope, let's call it. And ultimately what that means is that the budget drives how long you follow up people for or what fancy outcomes you try to measure in them. So obviously if you have a massive budget, you can do all kinds of weird and wonderful biochemical tests on people. And when you have a less or a more modest budget, let's say, you generally tend to, to focus on outcomes that uh, are easier to collect in some way, for example. And can you tell us why it seems sometimes through the research process that the information conflicts? How, how does that happen? Yeah, so you know, as, as, as I talk about this sort of process, you can imagine that the way you ask the question can drive totally different answers. The second piece is the design. You know, if you have a study design, let's say, that is at one time point, and you just sort of asked people a bunch of things, you have what's called a problem of reverse causality, 
which means you don't really know whether it was the chicken or the egg first, and you really have no idea which one is causing which. And so you, you're limited in what you can say is the cause and the effect. In the more fancy or the more well-funded studies, for example, when you are able to follow people over time, that's one way you can start to say, okay, we know the chicken came before the egg, for example. And when you're able to do even more fancy things, like let's say randomize people, in other words, you blind yourself and you allocate you know, this group of people to this condition and this group of people to, to that, you can then start to have some sense that there was a cause between what you did to those two groups of people and what happened to them in the end. And so each of these really can be factors that drive the way we think about the research and, and what the research is showing. And the reality is that the industrial, or I guess the, the research enterprise has grown so much, it's become an industry of itself, such that there are people in every corner of the globe right now, some of whom are more industrious than others, who are you know, sitting at a computer writing a variety of different new research articles. And the question is, what we as consumers of information get exposed to, and what hits the headlines and what grabs you, and how much it influences the way you think, that can be a very different heterogeneous effect across the, the globe. So it's not just the way I'm asking the question and the way you're asking the same question, but it's also what got to the end user and what got to our consumers out there. And so I think, unfortunately, those sort of things really drive wide varying of what is done and what is found in research studies. I'm curious to know, might you have an estimate of what percent of research or health research in general focuses on actual translation to the public or how the public interprets this stuff? Is there any section of research that focuses on that and how big is it? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So there's this whole area that is growing, which is called dissemination and implementation research. And it's really focused on how do you share all of this information that we find for the broader public and for change in some way, whether it be sort of a guideline change within medicine or a big policy change in public health or a behavior change, you know, that you and I might do on a regular basis and, and hopefully live healthier and longer lives. There is a challenge in, in actually achieving that, not only in doing the research. And as I said, this field is growing, implementation science or translation science. The challenge is that it's not just in sort of understanding behavior, but the end user, ultimately us, our likelihood of adopting varies so widely. And, and that can be for so many different reasons. That would be almost a talk of its own. But you can just imagine that in today's day and age, a really good example for you is the COVID vaccine. You know, we have excellent evidence from the best of the best types of studies, these randomized control trials, where the different vaccines were tested against no vaccine, and we know they work. But the question of will people take them in various corners of this country is an implementation and a translation question. And as you might have noticed, if you listen to the popular news, many different groups have tried things from donuts to lottery tickets to getting you to, to take your COVID vaccine, right? Those are implementation strategies. You could call them gimmicks, but they're implementation strategies, right? They're trying to say, 
somebody in Far Eastern North Dakota, what will get them to go take a COVID vaccine versus somebody sitting in California versus somebody sitting in Georgia and Atlanta, where I am? I think these are the sorts of implementation science questions out there. And whether or not people come along with the research, accept the research, internalize it, and then actually make a behavior change, that's something that we still haven't cracked the code for, but we're still trying to work on work on those sorts of things. And for people I talk to sometimes, they say, well, with COVID, I just don't know. It hasn't been out long enough. Are we sure? When it comes to things like food, people say, oh, but they're always changing their minds. Nobody seems to know what's really going on. You said it was good to eat today, and now tomorrow you're saying it's not. And so how do researchers respond to those concerns when the public feels like, oh, well, it's going to change again in five years? They're waffling, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So I think with things like COVID, it's a little bit simpler, right? Because there's a more acute question here. Will you roll up your sleeve and get two shots or, or one shot for that matter or not? And potentially there is less of a behavior change that needs to happen other than continuing to be cautious with masking and distancing and those sort of things, especially as we deal with sort of ongoing variants and these sort of things. That's sort of a different question. And, and in and of itself, that has challenges of meeting people where they are, right? So I'll give you a really good example where I think there are some people who maybe for social and political reasons are opposed to the COVID vaccine. And it's fascinating to me. I heard from a, a colleague recently that he has a number of friends who fit into a social political camp that routinely you would expect that they would not have taken the vaccine. Mm -hmm. But it turns out they did. And so he went and asked them and he said, you know, why, why did you get a COVID vaccine? And they said, well, I wasn't going to. But then it was being offered at the NASCAR race I went to. And if it's good enough for NASCAR, it's good enough for me. And that really tells you that you need to meet people where they are, right, in terms of trying to help change behavior. So certain people will respond well to that endorsement from something they trust. Others are just inherently trusting. Mm -hmm. Others are inherently distrusting. <laughs> and so I think, you know, we are, we are such a complex web of people in terms of what drives us to do regular behaviors. Information alone won't do it. And unfortunately, in public health, we've thought for centuries, we've thought that let's just educate the public better and they'll do it. When you talk about food and lifestyle, they're just an inherent part of who we are, our cultures, the way we were brought up, the smells, the tastes, the social aspect to food. And then there's this deep, dark, ugly part of food, which is potentially too much of it or the, the most tasty of it tends to cause metabolic problems with us. Weight gain, diabetes, heart disease, chronic kidney disease, all the things I study and most people think I'm a shrew for doing so. So you, you end up with this challenge where you can imagine all of those influences on how people think about food. And then there's us in the research camp where we continue to provide what we think is good and valuable information to the public out there. And unfortunately, over time, as you've noticed, mm -hmm. that science of food and nutrition and what it does to you changes. 
And the reality is that part of that is that we are actively in science. We are learning more. It's not a static field. We are always asking new questions. We are finding new study designs of doing of how we do things. And our scope can increase over time as things like blood tests for certain bionutrients or effects on the body get cheaper and cheaper. So sort of like how, you know, there's that law with the technology gets cheaper every eight years or something, or, or in an exponential form. I'm not sure what it's called. Moore's law, I think it is. In a similar vein, technologies to measure what food does to your body changes also. And, you know, I would love to say it's that younger scientists are all smarter, but it's also that we have the benefit of the, of the giants that came before us. So we're always asking newer questions. And so I think the field just continues to change. And as I mentioned earlier, what you should always take away from a scientific study is try to step back from it and, and ask yourself, how is it done? How convincing is this based on its study design and scope? Is it the chicken and the egg story or, or can I really tell? And then take away what seems reasonable to you. And do realize that those that are slightly higher than my pay grade, who are helping change guidelines or write policy documents, they do actually interpret our science very critically. And what they do try and do is they do try and say, okay, this one doesn't meet the, the pinch test because it was a single time point And we don't know whether it was the food that did it or something else. And so trust in them that there are these checks and balances in our, our research process that helps only the best science get into policy or get into guidelines for clinical care. And so hopefully that answers your question. It's a really long way of answering it, but I hope it's helpful. No, that's great. I think it's helpful. And I, it seems like you moved on a little bit to how people can help themselves, how people can figure out how to pick sense from nonsense to the best of their ability with the knowledge that they have, you know, because not everyone has a research background, but it sounds like you're saying, okay, well, at least read it. Does the, does the process seem logical to you in the way that they came to the conclusion? But do you have any even more babier <laughs> ways. How do you help your patients understand things when they come and they say, well, you know, doc, I was reading this and I think I want to switch my regimen or something. How do you help them through that process? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I'm going to split those two out if that's okay and, and answer the second one first. So what I do in, in my clinic is that I often just, first of all, hopefully I know something about what they're talking about. Yeah. And if I do, well, if I don't, let me start with if I don't, I, I promise to go read it up and just find out more before I guide them. Because I'm, I'm a great believer that, you know, evidence-based medicine is there for a reason. Somebody has done a lot of the work to summarize this somewhere in a lit review or in a guideline that I can then go look at quickly, interpret for my patient and help them with it. And if I haven't done that in advance, then I'm actually doing them some harm. So Assuming I, I then know something about it instead, in the, in the opposite example, what I tend to do is I tend to draw them a diagram of what I understand about it and really talk through the pros and cons of it and then try to practice some reasonable patient-centered decision-making, which is to say, what fits into your life and which of these options fits better in a way that you will continue to do it and that we'll get the good health outcome we want. 
So we try that. And in some cases, people follow it really well and, and play along with the whole patient-centered decision-making piece. And some people, people are like, I'm here because I'm outsourcing the decision to you, doc. You need to tell me what to do and I'll just do it. In which case I then, you know, give them my best bet. Your first question about how to make sense of information. That's a, it's a really good one. And I think in today's day and age, that is increasingly hard because we are bombarded by information. We are truly in this information age where, you know, people are seeing things on social media, they're seeing things in the news, they're seeing things on websites that are maybe not as vetted as, as some others. And or maybe they're hearing it from, you know, big medical societies or, or they're hearing it from, you know, big medical journals who are now increasingly also in the social media space. I think there's so many challenges with how people will, will interpret stuff because inherently, for example, as the, as the COVID-19 pandemic showed us, some people have an inherent mistrust of government. And so if, the, if government representatives are standing up there, it's very hard for them to trust. So what I often say to people is find some balance between whom you trust and whom you believe is at least somewhat credible. And those can unfortunately be two very different things because we do live in a world of fake news or at least a perception of fake news. And sometimes the things that I see as the most credible, in other words, it's met the checks and balances of the scientific community. It's in the highest peer-reviewed journal in the land, I see that as very credible. My neighbor might not. <laughs> and I don't know how to tell them that you know, they should see it my way. But in general, I would say to people, find what you believe is a credible piece of information, then ask yourself two questions. Well, maybe three questions. One is sort of, am I the sort of person who prefers changing cold turkey or do I need a gradual change? And in terms of said change, am I just self-motivated enough to do it or do I need some incentive? Do I need to know that there's a beach trip coming up and that I need the beach body to be able to change towards that and work towards that? Or that some, you know, the insurance company is going to give me some sort of reduction on my premium if I'm healthier? What sort of person am I? So ask yourself those two questions. And then the third big thing is, what is manageable for me? What fits in my lifestyle? And how do I make that a routine so that it's literally like brushing my teeth in the morning as I wake up and brushing my teeth before going to bed? If you can routinize these behavior changes, I think you're more likely to sustain them. But I think the hardest one of all of these is finding what you believe is credible and in my case, my hope for you is that what you believe is credible is also as close to scientific truth as I'd like it to be. <laughs> I like that. So I know that you are an NCD researcher. As you said, diabetes, metabolic disease, many of these are linked to lifestyle factors. Why is there such a link between lifestyle factors and these types of diseases and what can we do about it? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a terrific question. So... You know, you're exactly right. The, the, the things I study are not necessarily sexy, but they are unfortunately debilitating. And that makes for a very compelling piece of work. Like I really enjoy what I do. It's very challenging, as you said, because there is this relationship with how we live. 
And most of that relationship, we've, we've sort of discovered it over time in the notion that when people have excesses in their lifestyle, so excess of sugar, for example, or excess of fat or excess of alcohol or excess of smoking, all the fun things in life, we've noticed relationships in the, in the studies we've done and in the research that these are associated with more diabetes, more chronic kidney disease, more heart attacks, more cancers. The challenge you know, is, is also that some people will come along and say, well, doc, you're wrong. It's my genetics. You know, the reason I have, I'm carrying so much extra weight is that my mom was, was carrying extra weight, my dad, my uncles, my aunts. It's a family trait. And I think that's, there is something to be said for that. There is a lot of heart disease and a lot of diabetes out there that tends to be familial. You see it patterned in families. The difference is twofold in the way I think about that and the way some of those people think about that. The first is that, you know, we've actually, in the last two to three decades, there's been a plethora of research where researchers have gone out and looked at all kinds of genes in, in the genetic code and, and in DNA to try to see which of these specific SNPs, we call them, is associated with heart disease and diabetes, et cetera. And just in the case of diabetes, all the accumulation of like hundreds of SNPs they found explains less than 10% of the variance of diabetes. Ah. So that's pretty remarkable, right? The other piece I think that's a fascinating finding that was uh, found actually 20 years ago in two big diabetes prevention trials. In those trials, they, they looked to see who had a genetic SNP and you know whether they would develop diabetes or not. And so in the different study arms, they had people who were given intensive lifestyle coaching on how to improve how they eat, how they exercise on a regular basis. And they had people who were given just general advice. And what they did was they, they stratified that by whether you had a genetic risk. And it turns out the people who were given just the general advice, who were in the control arm, as expected, a lot of them developed diabetes. But it turns out that in the intervention arm, even if you had the genetic risk and you were given the intensive coaching and you changed your lifestyle, your risk of diabetes came down to zero. So it was quite phenomenal. It was this idea that even those predisposed because of their family history, if you made a really dedicated effort and you, and these are pretty substantial changes, right? I mean, people had to go from almost no exercise to, to doing exercise for 150 minutes a week, in other words, 30 minutes a day for about five days of the week. If they could do that and they could modify their diets to lower the calorie count, to lower the saturated fats and the added sugars, they were able to nullify their risk to zero. So it really reminds me that of this old adage that was said to me by one of my mentors some time ago is that the genetics, your family history interacts with the way you live your life. And you shouldn't always think that it's just one or the other, but they really interact. And for want of a better analogy, I apologize, it's a really terrible analogy, but it's this idea that the genetics, your genetics points the gun, but your lifestyle pulls the trigger. So if you can, if you can somehow avoid or put a lock on that, on that trigger with your lifestyle, you can avoid some bad, bad outcomes. And the lifestyle changes in that study were the 150 minutes of exercise a week and reducing saturated fats. 
reducing saturated fats, added sugars. And I think if, if I remember correctly, it's something like a 10% reduction in calories with a goal of essentially losing five to 7% of your body weight, which isn't huge. We're not looking for the biggest loser here. We're just looking for a reasonable reduction and a sustained change in the way you live. Thank you. Do you have any myths or misconceptions that you think are worthy of dispelling when it comes to chronic disease management? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So I think this one about, about genetics is a really big myth. And I think if you could share that one, that one would definitely be one of my top ones. The other one I would say is that, you know, it used to be underappreciated how much sleep matters and resting your body. And frankly, I'm, I'm a culprit of this too, is that for years I've thought, oh, it doesn't really matter. Sleep is not, not really anything that drives your metabolic risk. But increasingly, we're finding a lot of evidence that sleep really drives your metabolism and your body, your body really tries to find its set point. And when you haven't slept, it tries to compensate for that lack of sleep through other means. So it, it may prompt you, for example, in my, my sample size of one, I know when I haven't slept well, donuts, which I ordinarily dislike, suddenly become very attractive. And so, you know, and, and I often say, think to myself, it's really my body trying to compensate for the fact that I haven't slept so well. Wow, that's pretty interesting. And I'll ask you any myths and misconceptions as it relates to research or the research process. I could go on for a very long time on this question, but I think one of the ones that I struggle with as a misconception, and it can be quite challenging for even the brightest scientists to figure out, and that is that you know, for example, a lot of our, our evidence and a lot of our guidelines are based on this idea that you were asked a set of questions about your lifestyle or maybe even measured at one time point and people followed you for a decade or two and then you had some event, let's say you developed diabetes or you had a heart attack or, or maybe even you died. And we ascribe what happened 20 years ago to that event. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges I have with the way we do research is that, as I mentioned earlier, what we eat certainly changes on a day-to-day -day basis. You're not predestined to be the same weight for your whole life. Some stay the same. Some will gain weight over time. Some will lose weight. Some will fluctuate. And it's certainly true for blood pressure. It's certainly true for habits like tobacco use, for alcohol use. And so the idea that we should ascribe what happens to you 20 years later to, to what you told that researcher 20 years ago seems like a big problem to me. And I'm really hopeful that there will be efforts to increasingly improve that, both with repeated measures and using those repeated measures in the science that we put out into the world, but also finding other ways to, to really capture people's behavior without them having to spend time in the research study. And I think that what I mean by that is that's increasingly more possible through the watches we wear and the gadgets we hold on to, which are, for want of a better description, tracking us all the time. And I think as they track us, um, assuming you, you aren't a conspiracy theorist and worry about all of us looking at that data, we're looking at it in aggregate in general, and we're just trying to understand human behavior better and if you can look at it through the lens of 
by understanding human behavior in these large samples of people based on how they've been tracked in terms of their sleep, their eating and their movement, I think we will get better answers about this relationship between lifestyle and chronic disease. Certainly better than what we've had in, in, in the last uh, few decades. And worst case scenario, if it reaffirms everything we knew, great. Then we've been guiding the public right for three decades. Do you have any sense of why behavior change is so hard for us as humans? Where do I start? <laughs> I, I mean, this is one of those moments where I wish I had a degree in psychology. Yeah. You know, it, it's a fascinating field. And I'm learning late in life about, you know, these, these concepts that economists and psychologists have thought about for a long time. Issues like present bias. You know, we tend to prefer our status quo and what is happening now to a potential future. I think that is one that we certainly within the chronic disease world always think about because because the diseases that we study are what we would consider silent, right? So you don't feel that your blood sugar is high. You don't feel that your blood pressure is high, but they are silent killers. They are going around in your bloodstream, causing havoc in, in your organs. And the present bias is usually, well, if I don't feel it, why should I be investing in going for a run five times a week like the doctor is telling me to, when the benefits are only going to accrue in 10 years? Right? Why should I do all that? So I think that's one of the one of the many challenges, including other issues like sort of time and consistent preferences. In other words, over time we change the way we behave and what we prefer in life. We might even have inconsistencies in our preferences right now as we speak. You know, you you've clearly met people in your life that are paradoxical in the way that they hold so true to one set of beliefs but then do something that looks exactly diametrically opposing, but they'll justify it, right? <laughs> and there's so much of that in, in our lives, lives these days. So I would say that psychology, I wish I'd studied more psychology and economics, but I think those are, those are several of the things that are sort of going on psychologically. Economically, frankly, good food, exercise, time off work to do these, just you know, more and more scarce. Maybe potentially the COVID pandemic will reset us a little bit. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. But some small signs of hope in my mind are that, you know, wages are going up a little bit. Maybe potentially people will start to think about the world a little bit better in terms of it shouldn't just be all about our working lives. But unfortunately, at the moment, economic pressures are, are serious and they're hard for people to make changes in, in, in their lives. That's such a fantastic point that you raised because it touches so much on the the issue of health equity, food deserts. You know, some people just don't have the luxury of going for walks or doing these things that others take for granted. Absolutely. I mean, I think I might have told you this in class many years ago. As a poor student in England, I remember that, you know, for one pound, one British pound, you could get six triple chocolate muffins. Mm -hmm. For that same pound, you might get one and a half apples. And so it's it's really a disturbing situation, you know, when you're sitting there, a poor student, what do you spend your pound on? You know, how do you how do you make that decision? And, and it's very challenging. So my hope is that health equity becoming becoming more of a, a mainstream issue will hopefully start to to result in, in more opportunities for people to make better and healthier choices. I hope so. 
I remember you told us in class one time that it takes about 10 years for research to move to practice. And I was wondering, why is it so long and has the gap shrunk? Yeah, so there, so back when I told you that statistic, it was 17 years was the estimate. And it takes long for a variety of reasons, one of which, as I mentioned earlier, within science and research, there are checks and balances. And that's to try to avoid totally false or fake research from driving big policy decisions. And so for decades, there was this notion that as a researcher, you would do your study, depending on whatever scope it was and, and depending on what design and what question you were answering, you would analyze the data, you would write it up for the scientific literature and send it in. And, and that's one level of the checks and balances where you have your peers looking at the science and saying, is this credible? Is this accurate? Is this precise in how it was done? And do we believe it enough to put it in our you know, Lord, Lord journal <laughs> and share it with the world? And that's sort of one level of dissemination that happens. How well that scientist or, or group then goes out and shares it more broadly was limited by technology back then. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in an age where we still had uh, dial-up phones. And so you really couldn't share very broadly. We didn't have the internet until I was a teenager. But now we do have the internet. Now we do have Twitter. Now we do have social media accounts where people share their science pretty quickly. And so I think things are getting out there faster. But there is a second level of checks and balances, certainly within science and medicine. And that is usually that an institution that can help amplify the effect of what you found. And that could be government, that could be a professional agency. So in my case, the American Diabetes Association, for example, that could be an insurance company who says, you know, we're gonna pay for this new way or this new way to treat a condition. They have a level of checking, which then is, you know, is this credible, et cetera? Is this cost-effective? Can we, whoever it is, government, insurance, whatever, can we pay for it? And do we believe that by endorsing this, it will improve human health? And so those are the two biggest roadblocks in how long it takes to get research to, to be translated into practice and, and into policy. And then there's, as I said, the last step is the end user. So whoever that end user might be, maybe it's a human being like us, yeah. Do they then believe where it came from and do they actually want to do that? And that's sort of the psychology and economics of, of what happens. I will say I have never seen something as fast as the COVID vaccine mm -hmm. and the COVID research that has happened. That was driven by need and necessity. And it's phenomenal how the scientific community from the people who were, and, and I want to be very clear here, I include participants people who were affected by COVID, people who went and got COVID vaccines in the trials as part of that community, because they took a risk. They didn't know what was going to happen to them going along and going to this vaccine trial and getting a jab or two. That's really brave. They are way braver than I am. They are. And I have to give huge credit to this huge community of people that, that leaned in and went out and supported the quick understanding of what this disease was, who was showing up at hospitals being really sick, how testing was working, was it performing well, were people getting tested or not? 
And then this warp speed of testing a vaccine that these companies did, it's phenomenal. Part of it is we are fortunate that they already had the technology platform for the past decade, and it was really repurposed for the COVID-19 vaccines. But my goodness, we have really witnessed the fastest translation implementation that I've ever seen in my career, certainly. And I'm, I'm hoping what it'll do is that I'm hoping it'll, it'll narrow down that 17-year gap for future things that we do. I think that would be great. Uh, you preempted my question because that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think that the COVID vaccine <laughs> speed will make it shorter for everything that comes after it? I hope so. I do think there is something quite unique about that study and, the, and those vaccines and that there was this massive need and that there, everything from the enrollment of participants who felt this need and this desire and motivation to go and, to go and be a part of the trial to the, to the technologies and the way the, the companies invested in that technology. Because, because there are, you know, it, it is quite challenging, especially in my field, as I said, for all these silent killers, a lot of the companies that invest in these, in these drugs and, and ways to improve lifestyle and all these things, they really need to first do sort of the cost-benefit analysis in, in whether they invest or not. And that's what's different about COVID is that there was just this tremendous need where money didn't seem to be an object. But it's funny that you say that because I agree, but also as like a public health person, I kind of think, but don't chronic diseases kill, are responsible for like 75% of the deaths in the world. That sounds like a major need as well. So Where's the cost benefit there? It seems clear. <laughs> I'm with you, sister. And I, I wish you could say that from the, you know, the mountaintops and the tops of all the buildings out there. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. The, the data speaks for itself. What's challenging, I think, is, is how people interpret or prioritize chronic diseases in their minds. So, you know, the average person out there, there's variation in how they think about chronic disease for themselves. First of all, there's this notion that oh, that's not me, that's a statistic, that's other people, I'll never get one of those. Mm -hmm. right? Then there's, if I got it, there's, well, I much prefer eating the cupcake today than going for a run because the, the run will only benefit me in five years. Eating the cupcake, there'll be no difference, I'll still get the disease. So there's fatalism and there's a lot of that out there. And I think that there's in general this, this notion that chronic diseases are in some way your own doing. Mm. And some people in the, in the, both in the scientific and, and, and in political and other circles tend to think of it as it's your responsibility to look after your own health. Whereas with the pandemic, this little microscopic virus was causing things. And so we can blame it on something that we can then go and do something about. Whereas with, with chronic diseases, it's sort of, there's a general push towards an assignment of blame or an assignment of cause being the individual and that it's the individual's responsibility to then avoid and or take care of themselves. And how do you push back when you hear that? What's your response? Oh, I mean, I think, you know, just as I said earlier, there are some people who are genetically programmed to get these and that's not their fault for sure. The other thing I would say is that, you know, these, as you think about these diseases, they really can be devastating. And if you think from the perspective of self-interest of governments, political leaders, getting reelected by your population should clearly be one thing you're, you're interested in. 
And part of that getting reelected would be to keep a productive and happy and healthy economy. And if you have people that are unfortunately increasingly getting chronic diseases in their prime working lives, in their 35 to 60 odd year age group, if, you, if they're getting diabetes and they're paying for medications and they're missing work and they're not as productive as they could be, they're developing eye disease, going blind, needing dialysis, having heart attacks, that's not in your best interests as a political leader. You really should want a bunch of 35 to 65 year olds who can be in their prime of their lives, invest in their families, have super well-educated kids who then go on to also be economically productive and healthy and happy. So that would be my retort is don't just blame it on the individuals, invest in treatments, lifestyles, and policies that can support healthy lifestyles and you will get your due. You should put that in an ad. You just said it like a good campaign slogan. (laughs) Do you have any closing thoughts as we wrap up our conversation? Maybe just a couple. One is to say thank you for for inviting me to do this. It's very kind. You've actually stimulated a few more ideas in the the process. Two, you know, for, for all of those people who are struggling with the volume of information out there, I, I, I strongly recommend, you know, rethinking some of the less less credible sources you might usually look at and try to sort of believe in the scientists that are out there. They're not doing this for themselves. None of us is really out here to, to make ourselves famous. We do things, uh, you know, that are on topics that are, in my case, very unsexy, but I really believe that they are important because they really affect people's lives, their families, their communities, and their employers. And to the extent you can, you know, believe in what science is telling us. And then for your own self to be healthy, find the snippets that you can incorporate in your lifestyle. And let's all just be healthier together. Well, thank you so much for coming to the Good Health Cafe, Dr. Ali. Happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. What did you think of the episode? Isn't Dr. Ali great? I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. If you did, please be sure to share this episode with a friend so more people can continue to learn about the Good Health Cafe. Until then, see you in the cafe next time. Bye.